Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Shift Show, where my number one goal is to bring you the ideas, tools, and the latest science to help you change athletes' lives. My name is Dave Tilly, and today on the podcast, I have probably one of the most important areas uh, that has to be addressed in gymnastics. It's the concept of how much is too much, you know, how much are we pushing young kids in a sport that's extremely demanding, and it all kind of wraps into uh, the incredibly serious effects of chronic stress on a young person, or honestly, in anyone, right? So, um, if I'm being honest, I think that this is probably the hottest topic right now in kind of all of sports medicine, but it's also really the burning question on many people's minds in gymnastics as, you know, we, we see these young kids who are exposed to just so much training volume and so much me- mental and physical stress. Everybody kind of scratches their heads and is wondering, you know, where's that fine line between pushing hard enough that you're actually getting a training adaptation and that you're really preparing somebody for, um, you know, the demand of gymnastics because uh, everybody really understands that you do have to work hard and it's, it has to be done intelligently but it, if you do it correctly it leads to very very positive aspects so there's sometimes a misconception that all stress is bad but in reality there's a, a very good amount of use stress it's called that allows people to you know grow and adapt and handle harder situations and, and become stronger if you're talking about physical preparation but also handle a big stage of competition or kind of be exposed to more things as they grow older so um, I spend a lot of time studying the field of stress neuroendocrinology and workloads. Um, I don't know why my brain works this way, but I really find it super interesting. So especially in a concept known as epigenetics, which I'll talk about in the lecture, which is how your environment and the things that you experience in your training kind of may alter some of your uh, gene expression. And if that's a super you know, nerdy way up in the clouds, don't worry, because I don't really dive into the neuroscience in the actual lecture, but I talk about how it really translates to the way that we interact with kids as adults, as coaches, medical providers, parents, whatever it is. And it also kind of uh, blends into the way you develop a culture in gymnastics around training and peers and, you know, discussion about hard work and training and things like that. So you know, I think the, the research is really interesting in this field because when you look at the broader landscape of everything from workloads to stress physiology to, you know, the actual prescription of uh, periodization, sometimes you see that there's kind of a U-curve that exists. And this happens all the way down to the actual cellular level with uh, glucocorticoids, what they're called, but also all the way up to the workload level, which is global. So, you know, too much and too little is probably going to be an issue if we go really, really hard and go nuts that's probably going to be problematic for, you know, overuse injuries or mental burnout or emotional strain that's too high. But also, if you don't ever stress somebody enough or do anything, you're probably not going to prepare them for their skill or their sport, but you're also probably not going to ever get them strong enough or fit enough to handle a larger training volume. And so I think that as humans, we're designed to adapt and grow when there's stress. And you have to really understand that pushing somebody intelligently is okay. And it's actually what you want. So um, I think that the reason it comes up so much in gymnastics is because the kids are so young. Um, usually gymnasts specialize very early and, uh, you know, sometimes there's a range of training environments that people question about whether they're, you know, more of a dictatorship or they're a little, you know, too stressed and authoritative, or you have somebody who's a little bit more transformative and is maybe, you know, trying to promote an environment that's really healthy, kind of living between those two environments is super important. So we have to really make sure that we're educated on how to properly dose all forms of stress, um, you know, workloads, as well as, you know, the, the kind of mental and emotional strain that comes with it. 
But we also have to really understand that we need to have good markers of healthy training. We need to understand how we're pushing people appropriately to, to really adapt well and uh, at the same time not like jump that fine line of overuse injury or burnout or training or things like that. So that's a long explanation intro, but I think it's very important. Uh, this lecture was taken, um, sorry, this podcast was taken from a lecture that I did. It was about an hour long where I, I kind of had been working on all of these slides, uh, studying textbooks and some other things that I'm interested in. And it was the first time that I really put it into a lecture format. This was the first time I ever did this lecture. So I wanted to capture it because I think that everybody is, is really facing some of these issues in the training aspect or in the medical field. So uh, it's about an hour long and I think it covers everything from training volume to, you know, coaching leadership values to uh, communication and kind of open transparency with the athletes. And then also kind of ending on how do you build a culture that promotes very hard training, but is also, you know, in a, in a you stress model. Again, it promotes the optimal adaptation. So uh, definitely please let me know what you think about this episode. I really want to hear people's feedback uh, either through ratings and reviews on iTunes, which is uh, super helpful for me to understand how the podcast is doing, but also uh, maybe in the form of question and answers. If you go to www.shiftmovementscience.com backslash podcast, there is a form there to submit questions for future episodes, which people have been liking a lot. Uh, and also if you have you know anything on social media, comments, things like that, I'd really like to get a discussion going around the big kind of chunks in this episode that people may enjoy. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the Workloads and Chronic Stress audio podcast. So the good thing about this lecture is that much of what we just covered has a lot of overlap in the concepts. So it's not going to be, it's going to be some new material, but I think a lot of it is taking the same concepts and applying it into a much bigger thought process. Um, so it's kind of funny how the lectures have been ordered. I like flexibility. It's cool. I love strength and conditioning. I am freaking obsessed with this kind of stuff. I think that this stuff is the most interesting from a impact point of view of how you can help the most people, the most kids stay safe, the most kids reach high performance. Um, and it also applies a lot to you as coaches to not be burnt out, to not be super stressed with the way that you're training. Um, and I don't really write a lot about this because it's, it's still something I'm learning. Um, but in the last year, I've spent a lot more time on it. Tim Gabbett, like I've said, is in Melbourne, and he's probably the wor one of the world's leading experts on workloads and um, predicting injury, but also predicting performance and professional and elite level athletes. And so I've spent a lot of the research comes from him, um, and a lot of his stuff is into what I've thought in gymnastics. And I'm going to his course actually in a month in New York, which I'm really excited for. And I was lucky to have a nice little like half hour podcast chat with him um, about you know, gymnastics and applications and, and some really good information is coming down the pipeline for how to help this issue. Um, if I could, and, I, and I'll be honest, of if I could take my whole life and stop it and just study stress neuroendocrinology, I would do it. I think that I missed my calling and I should be a neuroscientist. And I study a lot about um, something called epigenetics, which is how your environment changes your genes. And the reason I study that is half because I'm still very mad at the way that some people have treated young gymnasts from a young age and I think it's ruined them. And I also think that when I look at the broad landscape of everything that I do, it all falls under stress. It's in some way, shape or form, I'm manipulating stressing somebody. Whether you're, it's a coaching situation and I'm trying to stress you like we talked about in the, lect in the last lecture, whether it's a medical thing and you were overstressed and you broke and had surgery and now I'm slowly applying more stress, 
whether it's my personal life and what I think helps me develop into a better coach and a better human is managing my own stress and it's trying to keep myself kind of in line. What makes coaches the happiest across the world is finding a way to balance their stress levels. And you have a lot of different aspects of stress and workloads comes down to the physical loading of an athlete, but it also comes down to how do we buffer stress in high performing situations, right? Sports psychology helps you deal with the mental strain of training. You know, nutritionists help you deal with recovery, which is the opposite side of the stress equation, right? All these things somehow come into the equation of work plus recovery equals adaptation. And so that's why I love it because I feel like everything I've studied in the last 25 years, uh, I didn't study when I was three. I don't know why I said that. Um, everything that I've studied, <laughs> everything that I have done in the last 25 years in gymnastics, I think has led me to want to study more about this field. And I do not want to make this a neuroscience lecture, but I want to share with you the things that have completely changed the way that I approach my everyday life as a human, but also as the way I interact with kids when they're having a tough day, the way I interact with athletes when they say I want to go to the Olympics and I say it's time to put the rubber to the road and you're going to work your face off, or when we're trying to teach athletes the concept that I just want you to be healthy at the end of this no matter what happens, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And if I'm being very radically honest, I think that this is probably the biggest conversation that's going to happen, forced probably in some areas, that didn't happen 10 years ago. And it led a lot of countries to be regretful about the decisions that they made on the process to high performance. I think there's a way, now that I've met Nick and Val and CA and some people here, I now have established the thought process that there's definitely a way to reach high performance without so much collateral damage that's happening. Okay? You're going to get bumps and bruises along the way. There's three things that I should have had surgery on, don't get me wrong. But I think that by taking a step back and thinking about workloads and stress, we can understand much more coherently how do we get kids there in 20 years without having so much problems. And we're, everyone gravitates towards the negative side. They think about the, the, the bad things that happen with stress. They think about it. stress is bad. Stress is good. The optimal dose of stress is the best thing that you can possibly do for yourself and for your athlete. And so when I look at the highest performing athletes in the gymnastics arena that I've interacted with, and also some of the professional Olympic athletes I've, I've interacted with, they understand the positive aspects of stress and they embrace it willingly. Okay, Olivia smiling in the, in the video is a product of our environment creating a healthy relationship with stress and understanding that fear, stress, worry, anxiety is part of performance and that you have to work your way through it to get to where you wanna go. And that, that's why I really think that this lecture is so cool and I think that it's gonna be valuable, I hope, is because it's the, it's the combination of what we know needs to change and what is definitely going to be forced in the next two years. So that's where we're going. Okay. So why should we talk about this? I think it's the hottest topic right now. It's, it's emerging in research. It's what we all have conversations about. The last four lectures, increase your flexibility so it's more stress over your whole body and not on just your wrist joint or strength and conditioning for stress or cardio for stress. It's all the center umbrella of what we're doing. Okay. I think that the conversation is even more serious in the research and in what we talk about when you have athletes who are highly specialized at an early age. Because now you have to think about someone who starts gymnastics when they're four, but wants to go to the Olympics when they're 24. Okay, And managing that equation across the entire couple decades is very, very important, especially when you have little Sally who does like a standing aerial when she's eight and you're like, whoa, we have something in the pipeline here. Okay, So you have to think about whether your goal is to just be happy, healthy, and survive gymnastics in any discipline, or it is to make it to that level, it's all the same principles. Okay, There's a lot of research coming out, okay, but not in gymnastics. 
and that's what's, what's challenging. A lot in football, a lot in rugby, a lot in um, running, a lot in swimming, uh, just because they have more money. They have, they have more money and more financial stake to put into it in the States. Uh, MLB and NFL is a religion and a day of the week. So they have billions of dollars to pour into research and all that kind of stuff. Thankfully, gymnastics is going to get more because we realize that it's needed. So I think that we're going to emerge more research projects. And we have four that are starting right now in Boston for some risk guard studies and some workloads, some flexibility stuff. So it's good that it's coming. Um, but for right now, in terms of what do we do, if there's no research study that's going to tell you how many of your chancos is good, but how many is not like, going to hurt you. There's just no golden number that we have right now. So we have to infer from what's available. Okay, so we take the best of what's available in other sports. We combine that with a few other principles, right? One of which is just the fact that everybody who's in sports is a human. Human stress systems are universal, okay? There's a difference between the types of stresses that you embrace, whether that's sled pushes or whether that's something else, hopefully it doesn't turn off, but this, it's universal. And so that's really good because you know that sled pushes for a swimmer are the, are the same demand as sled pushes for a gymnast. They're different applications and different parameters, but it's still gonna elicit a very similar response, okay? We take what's best from coaching expertise, which is what I've just done the last five years, is figure out how athletes are programmed for and talk to coaches about what they would do in this situation, just like we had a conversation about that elite conversation earlier, okay? Taking the best from what causes injuries of why shoulders get cranky, why lower backs fracture, you know, the pathomechanics it's called of why injuries are so common in our sports, okay? And then you also combine that with just good old-fashioned strength and conditioning research. When you tie those things together, you definitely have a better avenue to work with and things to work with. Okay, hopefully this is a common theme that you're noticing. <laughs> this, this is not gonna go well if you do not understand your own situation. We're gonna have a similar conversation but with different questions about stress management. Okay, the ideal work to rest ratio is the golden egg. That's what you're chasing, okay? How much is enough to help you but not hurt you? How much is enough to get you to high performance and not cause collateral damage along the way? That's the macro. The micro, how many shapashes should I have you do today? before you start to get tired and the quality falls apart. How many trampoline bounces should you take of high level jumps before your knees start to hurt? Okay, what's the optimal window of pushing you enough to cause adaptation, but not so much that you curve into maladaptation? You stress, good stress, mal stress, bad stress, okay? It's a, a fine gray line there, and I promise you it's the art and the science of coaching blended together. If you know all the research, but you can't talk to your athlete, it's not gonna go well. If you have the best emotional intelligence skills in the world, but you never read a book, it's not gonna go well, okay? It's, it's the balance of both. Learning is the art, sorry, learning is the science, delivering is the art, that's what you wanna think about. Okay, so that golden egg, the equation is, you plan, you think about all the periodization stuff we had, you stress somebody, you recover them, and then you tinker as you go, okay? In that order, forever, all the time. <laughs> if, if that's the only thing that you take away from the last two days, is that is how we're designed as humans, okay? Interesting point, and this is the only thing I'll talk about, is that the stress system we have now is built by evolution, okay? The reason we have something over there moves and I stop and I turn and I look is because that used to be a tiger jumping out of the bushes. Now, it's somebody hating on me in Instagram social media comments, okay? We've evolved our stress system to still react the same way to a very different lifestyle than what we had. And the reason I say that is because Things that you don't think stress you probably put your athlete through the wall, okay? So things that they care about, school, friends, competitions, parent pressure, those things are just as stressful 
as the five to seven shapashas that you did. And you have to think about that because cumulative strain matters for this equation. Okay, and we know that intuitively. We understand that if someone's having a bad day and they're barely, you know, on this planet, it's probably not the best day to push them as hard as we can. Sometimes you're just like, okay, I'm just gonna leave her alone. She's having a rough day, you know, and you just kind of you play with it a little bit. But I think that when you understand how to manipulate the pieces in here, the window of opportunity for you to reach high performance or just make kids that are happy with their journey is enormous. Okay, and that's that's what's gonna happen in the next few years. Okay, so we'll start with this again. What are my values? What are my goals? What are my gym's goals? Okay, how do I represent that now? Not so much in the strength and conditioning, but in the daily training environment. Okay, in the way that we push kids, the way we encourage kids, the way we motivate kids. Um, did you did anybody see Nick's lecture on motivation when he was here last year? Did he do that one? Amazing lecture, right? Incredible how he talks about you know sticks and carrots and things like that and fear. I think it's really really cool. But you have to realize that yelling at an athlete elicits a very different motivational and stress response than teaching the athlete and encouraging them to do something on their own. Okay, so the way that you can really <laughs> apply this is understand the long-term goal of what yelling does and what screaming does and what pushing somebody beyond that threshold does, right? Because your body is designed at all times to try to handle that and then grow from it. So you have to really think about the emotional intelligence part of stress. Okay, so this is gonna be in the other slide as well, but I put this in on the backbone of that fear yelling conversation, okay? If you look in research, a leader's values and morals, so the way that you model yourself, this is from like positive psychology research and some other stuff, and I was interested in this because my athletes told me I had a massive ego and that I should probably figure it out, um, is that if you're more of a, what they call a, a transformative leader, you believe in, the, in the, the group, you believe in the journey, work your face off and you'll get what you want, not, do this because I said so, right? Not, you did it wrong, go climb the rope. So it, that's a dictatorship type, type leadership style. Someone who's just like, they could have roses and cupcakes and they wouldn't be happy. You know, that kind of methodology. Um, if somebody leads in more of that community-based process goal orientation that Shane was talking about, they have a higher uh, adherence to exercise. They're more likely to show up to practice. That's kind of common sense. <laughs> you know, that kind of makes sense. Okay, it also influences burnout rates in athletes. It also influences injury rates and times missed from training or competition. And that study specifically, we'll talk about down the road. Okay, very interesting. This is a handball study from England, maybe? Coaches that were more anxious in the competition, the athletes were more anxious as well, and they had poor performance. So in, in our setting, it's like the coach that is yelling at the judge or is running around trying to find mats or is like, I can't believe you got that score. And like they're like really like on the edge of their breaking point in practice or in competition, our, our, the way we're designed is we model those leaders at all times. It was our parents at one point, and all of us are probably surrogate parents for our athletes at this point, right? But they model what we do, okay? So in a competition setting, we talk a lot about what you can control and what you cannot can control. You can't control the weather. You can't control the judge who has a bad day. You can't control, there's not a, a certain map that you really needed. You can't control how long you wait for the next event. You can control the way you respond to that. And that's really important to teach athletes of managing their own stress and competition. And the same thing goes for coaches, right? If somebody, I don't know, we were in a group with another uh, coaching squad, the other meet two weeks ago, and they took 11 vaults to warm up. The girls were flipping vaults. It was like timer, block, timer, timer, block, timer, block, flip, ah, timer, block. I was like, okay, you're taking a long time here, right? And it's like the athletes were waiting and I was like, yeah, I think we gotta. I think we gotta hop in here. You know, I, th I think our time's up. And she was like, "No, we're not done yet." And I was like, 
okay, good luck, you know? And I just kind of like stepped back and I was like, girls, just, just stay warm and uh, we'll get there when we get there. And the judge, head judge came over and said like, you're done. And, uh, but in that moment, could I have been off my rocker and yelling and being like, this is ridiculous. You know, like could I have flipped out and been complaining to my athletes? I very well could have. And what would have that said of me of a leader if I asked them to not flip out after they get a poor score, but then my example is flipping out on a coach who's taking too much time. Okay, so that's a very interesting study I thought was, in terms of high performance of getting to that level, when 1% you're trying to squeeze out everything from the lemon you can, that's a big 1%, okay? Uh, Anti-social or social interactions, the way that they interact with each other, okay, that was very, very cool to see like that community aspect, which is why I'm involved in what I think really fosters a high performance environment, okay? And then the intrinsic motivation, doing it for the process and then their trust in you, okay? So that's pretty wild, right? All those studies kind of correlate those things to it and the reason it relates to stress is because if any of those things are going wrong, the stress level is climbing little by little, right? All the time, right? You're frustrated, the athletes are coming to practice, a bunch of kids quit, you know, like they're always hurt. Like it's just, again, it's, it's the tipping point of the stress balance equation is out of whack. So I thought that was super interesting, one more. Uh, social responsibility, taking ownership for your own career, okay? So on that backbone, what are my values, right? I think that I try to be a good person, I try to work real hard, and I try to make my gym a better place. Right in our gym, we said this: health, great humans, great gymnasts. That's our. That's how we balance the entire equation. Okay, how we represent this is that in our personal facility, every gymnast is welcome to come, whether you want to jump in the foam pit or whether you want to do the Olympics, as long as you follow our culture guidelines. Be a good human, work real hard, and make our gym a better place. If you're in there and you're working hard and you're a good human, doors are always open. You're welcome to be there no matter what. The second you drift away from those cultural guidelines, we're gonna have a conversation. Okay, secondary. Their gymnastics. I am not the one competing. I am helping you do gymnastics. I'm helping you along the process, and that is a dramatic shift in the amount of stress an athlete feels, where they feel as though they are always trying to impress somebody else. Their mom, their coach, their friends. As soon as you start to do it all for somebody else, the amount of stress you feel when things don't go well, which they always do, is tenfold. And everybody here has a situation where they felt that. Okay? We try to be a good role model with the coaching staff. Right? And then we talked about our radical transparency policy, right? But that is the foundational guideline for how I think stress balances well in our gym and what I see in a lot of other gyms that I'm in. Okay, so the planning process for this is this equation again. That's what we're following, okay? And I like this uh, aspirin analogy. Aspirin is really good for you if you have a headache, right? Two aspirin are good for you. What happens when you take 40 aspirin? You die, <laughs> right? So aspirin is a good tool to help your headache if it's in the right dosage. And that's exactly the conversation I have with athletes every day at Champion, right? At the place that I work out, I'm like, yeah, you know, gymnastics is probably good for you if you train in the proper dosage. You know, standing in front of a school and giving a presentation is good if it's in the right dose, right? Being upset about something and having an emotional experience is good if you learn from it in the right dose, right? But if I overdose you, we're gonna hurt you, physically and mentally and emotionally. And that happens in a lot of different ways, right? The physical aspect is just, a lot of routines, a lot of hard landings, they get an injury. Emotionally, it's someone who can't handle the pressure cooker of a high pressure meat, falls, and then a bunch of stuff happens and they feel horrific about it, right? All those things are, if you stand, sit down and try to read an entire textbook in two hours, it's an overdose. It's not gonna go well, right? Slow doses. Okay, so too much is you're gonna overtrain somebody, too little, and you're gonna be underprepared. And this is a really good graphic from Tim. I say Tim like he's my buddy. I've only talked to him on a podcast once, right? From Tim Gabbett is in his latest book, um, book chapter on workloads, which is a really good book down there. So just like his equation he had, you load somebody, you recover them, you get that super compensation phase, and over time, 
You're increasing someone's capacity. That's what that says. You're increasing resilience to injury. You're increasing their fitness level to handle a long training week when it's a competition week or something like that. Okay, that's what we're aiming for. The problem happens is when we get the equation wrong. We either under, under recover somebody or overdose them and they slide into the red, which is they don't fully recover and the training load is applied too soon again and they tank down lower. What is the end result of that red line? What's it called? You guys know? Overtraining syndrome, right? Non-functional overreaching is another term they use for it. Functional overreaching is when you have the optimal dose and you're building athletes up over, over time. It is pushing them harder than they can possibly take. That's how you elicit a response. But it's going in the trending of positive, not the trending in direction. So what are the signs of the trending down direction? Just call them out. Because you guys have to know how to pick up on it. Injuries. Injuries. Yeah. What else? Tired. They just can't do it. I Negativity. Just can't. What's that? Negativity. Yeah. Comments. Negativity bias. They're always in that mental. Diva. They are yeah. always dramatic about everything all the time. And you're like, this is not like you. Why are you like so snippy all of a sudden? Right? Those are the signs. And sometimes it's not the training load. Sometimes you're doing everything right and it's working well. Mom got a divorce. Huge test, right? Test seasons in America were correlated to injuries significantly. Finals and exams and stuff like that were highly correlated to injuries in an NFL or NCAA sporting situation, right? Cumulative bucket of stress. It's all the same, right? If I walk up really close and I start just talking really close to his face, He's starting to get a little worried about me, right? That's the same thing. If I had him do 60, he's like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm steely damn. No. But if he had 60 seconds of air squats, it's stress, right? If we had him switch to roll and stand up here and give this presentation, it's stress because he's like, I don't I wasn't ready for this. You know, those are all different forms of stress. Your body recruits the same response. Heart rate goes up. Breathing rate goes up. It's trying to use fuel to recover. It's all the different sites of what we have. Okay. So that's a really good graphic. Does anyone know Goldilocks and Three Bears? Is that like a very naive American thing to ask? That's fairy tale? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so this porridge is too hot, this porridge is too cold, this porridge is just right. That's what we're trying to find, the porridge that's just right. Okay, so how do we plan? Okay, in the periodization model, this is the same thing from the last lecture, put in a graph, okay? Think about the year, what's the biggest peaks or three peaks? How am I gonna do that by training blocks? How will I plan that month to month? How will I break that down into weeks of training units? How will I break that down into Monday? And how will I plan that into what your actual bar assignment is going to be? Okay? So then my example that I use for our gyms, okay? The year for us is nationals. Oh, wait, sorry. It's the same thing. Come on, you can do it. Hey, there we go. So peak at nationals, that's our goal, right? That's what our kids have as a goal, okay? If that means that we're going to break things up with skills, doing power intervals, right, in the cardio system, okay? We're going to plan that. So that's the month. That's our, our training block, sorry, is, is oriented around getting new skills, getting us more powerful up and doing intervals. The way we do that in our month cycle is that three on, one off, okay? The way we do that by the week, two heavy days, two medium days, one light day, two off days. The way we do that by today is Monday, it's a heavy day, okay? Training assignment, two bar routines, two corrections, side, whatever it is, you know your training assignment. But you guys see how that goes all the way down? It's gonna take you a long time to sit down with your staff and start from the, the end and work your way backwards, but once you do it once, you have all the tools you need to rinse and repeat the following year. And I was talking to Josh about this on the flight over. I got a text from one of my coaches. It was like, we need a new strength plan. I was like, crap, I forgot, I forgot the right strength plan. So I went in the archives of last year at this time, and I looked at all of the stuff, six-week cycle, four days per week, what we did, took the template, 
changed all the exercises that I thought needed to change based on they need more bars right now. So we put more bar stuff in, looked at the sets and reps, and I adjusted those. An hour on the plane, done. Because I had that template, already knew what worked last three years. And I kind of repeated that and rinsed and, and tinkered based on what the athletes need. And then I texted her with a plan. I said, hey, follow this plan. Uh, Alex has to do this though. Olivia has to change this exercise because she's a little sore here. You know, and then she texts me back and she's like, okay, this went well, this didn't well. And that's, that's the process of tinkering that was in that little equation. Okay, once you do it once, it is a bear. It is aggressive to do it all over and over and over. The first year I did it, it took me three hours to write that new plan every single month because I was looking back in research and I was figuring out what I wanted to do and I was talking with Nick and I was trying to figure it out. But now that I have it, I feel like we're in a really good spot. Cool, okay, so uh, helpful ideas, okay, taking the best of what other research says from other sports. In baseball, they use pitch counters. You guys, does cricket use pitch count as well? Like with young kids? Yeah, yeah. Like so like young kids in, in American baseball, if you're eight years old, you're not allowed to throw more than blank pitches, 80 pitches in a game, because after that, you start to get a really high risk of elbow injury. Again, million dollar lab, lots of research, huge data, they can do that, right? And running or football, the mileage logged and then returning to a running program is correlated to injury. So they put GPS trackers on people playing soccer and they run around and they, they say, okay, these eight people who ran over X mileage started to have knee pain. But these X people who ran this amount seem to be okay. And they reverse correlate the data down to see like what's that ish window that you want to be thinking about. So they have very helpful markers of measuring. Running is running. <laughs> miles. Of course you can log that, right? You can only throw the baseball a handful of ways, but you're still throwing. What's the problem with gymnastics? So much infinite. Going on. It's infinite, right? If you land on that mat versus that mat versus the blue strip, it's completely different force, right? If you land from a high bar versus a low bar, it's completely different force. If you land under rotated versus up really rotated versus on one leg versus your hand slipped and you landed on your face, it's completely different forces. So there's, it's really hard to measure arbitrary units of workload. So what I suggest you do is what's the next piece is coming is based on your domain, pick the biggest like chunk that you can you can measure. Okay, so what I suggest is for women's, okay, it's the number of hyperextension skills because that's typically correlated to injury, right? And as they grow older, every event tends to get that. It's also the number of impacts they take. So soft, hard, whatever it is, that's a really good way to get a general kind of idea. Okay, for men's, I also add the number of wrist impacts. Okay, and I also add shoulder intensive skills, so jams or um, Trying to think what else, maybe like pelts, very aggressive overhead hyper extension range of motion. Those tend to make people cranky. Okay, and then lower body impacts as well, more so for the guys because a double double laid off high bar is ridiculous. Okay, for trampoline, and I think we had talked about this before, Steve. I didn't know this, this is cool. Steve said there's force pressure sensors in the ground and then lines across the trampoline for flight time. And uh, they were saying how we want to get into that window of much higher bouncing, right? So if somebody can figure that out to use that data and have those systems in their training facilities, you could probably pay a software engineer to program flight time and impact of ground reaction forces and see the workload, the gymnastics trampoline workload for that day based on flight time and based on the beam kind of thing. I think if I was only in trampoline, I'd be putting all the time that I could into figuring that out because you'd really get to understand you know, higher bouncing, more force, kind of makes sense. You know, triple flipping versus single flipping, more force. And Steve and Camilla have told, Camilla is Steve's wife, have told me that um, they use that, they use that intuitively in their head to coach about how they kind of tinker with kids and not expose them when they're younger. So I think that that trampoline is off to a really good start. Artistic gymnastics, we gotta catch up. Okay, for tumbling, uh, I think it would be the number of heavy impacts 
and then I think it would be the low, medium, and the high intensity tunneling passes. So just one pass of lower intensity basics versus a medium pass versus like your top end hard, hard, hard stuff. You can measure those. And then for rhythmic, I think the best way to do it would be the most advanced or provocative skills. I'm not in the world of rhythmic coaching, so I don't know. But whatever things tend to correlate to injury, the movements that correlate to injury, you probably want to find those and, and dose those carefully. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's where I'm at now for doing it. I'll give you the foreshadowing of where I think we're going if you weren't here Friday. Tim and I talked about maybe breaking things up, not so much into specific units, maybe for the medical side we do that, but breaking things up into the intensity of the effort, right? So the warm up, basics, shaping, and drills are a one category. 60 minutes of that times one is 60 units, okay? If in the middle, just say we're doing actual tumbling passes, we're actually doing higher bounces, whatever it is, uh, that's a two weight because it's slightly more intense, but it's not nothing. 60 minutes of that times two, 120 units. Yeah, you guys got one going? Routines, competition, peak meet, it's a three or a four weight, and they have higher exponential weighting because of how demanding they are. You take the averages of the day and you add that to the, the athlete's perceived exertion. How hard was that on a zero to 10 scale? Because that interprets their interpretation of it. Okay, if I tried to run a mile right now, I'd have a different perceived exertion versus if you guys all ran a mile based on who's good at running a mile. Right, so you guys all know this. The same five releases for the for two athletes is completely different. Completely different. Okay, so that's that's what I think is going to happen in the next two years. What's going to happen is it's going to we're going to figure it out fast. Hopefully, I'll share it with everybody, and then three years from now, the research will catch up and be like, oh, this is a good thing to do. Okay, so that's what I think is going to be where I spend most of my time in the next year is researching this. Okay, so another kind of helpful idea: the inverted U curve. Right, we dished on this in the last one. So. Not want to go nothing. This is not about not doing training and not pushing hard, but it's also not about crushing kids. It's about living somewhere in the sweet spot, and that's why they say the inverted U-curve. Living in that middle, okay, with tracking those things we just talked about, is probably your best chance of success. Along with that, okay, another one that seems to be very, very important. Uh oh, my Wi-Fi is coming on. Boop. Okay, so this is the graphical representation that Tim had in the research. So he measured. I think it was GPS and running in people, and he found that people who averaged more in one week over the three week previously, they had a significantly higher risk of injury if they pushed the gas pedal really, really hard acutely, okay? So if they like had a training load that was moderately high, and then all of a sudden they were like, oh God, competition season, and they blasted through a higher training load, they had a 7,000% increased risk of injury. What would you do if I gave you a $7,000 raise? <laughs> Is that incredible? So kids that essentially are kids, these are grown men in football, right? People that had a high workload but then suffered an acute spike in training volume, whether that was just because they increased at a training camp, that's a common thing that I see hurts a lot of athletes, or they had an injury and they weren't training at that high level and they went back from medical too early and they didn't prepare them well enough and they jumped back into full training. Okay, so for gymnasts, okay, somebody tweaks their back, they take a week deal of training, they come back, they do everything, they get hurt again. Okay, or Training, 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 mock meet, competition approaching. Oh my God, we're not ready. And the thing increases through the roof. Okay, so that's what you gotta be aware of from that point of view. And this is highlighted kind of here, right? So the journey is more important than the destination. These sharp spikes are highly correlated to injury and burnout and, and issues with performance where they don't perform as well as they think they were going to. The better approach is trying to dose somebody with the same goal in mind, but through small little waves based on how we're designed versus just like, gas pedal. Okay. And sometimes it's not the coaching error. It's the athlete error, right? Athletes that will do anything possible to reach high performance, um, are 
training on their off days, right? We just talked about it. Are like, no, I got to get in the gym. I, I got to do something. I got I to I move. I can't just sit here and do nothing, right? They have that must do more mentality, which is why I talked about optimal dose over more is better. Because sometimes it's not about that they're not doing enough. It's about that they're not responsible for the recovery. And they don't understand or have been educated about how recovery is when you get stronger. Nobody gets stronger when you're doing pull-ups. You get stronger when you do pull-ups, then you go to bed and you eat the right thing and you drink water and you have time between your training session. That's when your body repairs itself. That's how our stress systems are designed. Okay, so slowly ramping those things up. And then along with that, the one, two, three waiting is, is common knowledge, right? If you bury an athlete on Monday, you have to be careful on Tuesday, especially if it's a back-to-back -back training session. Okay, and that's been shown in the research for what they call decay waiting, so or, or rolling averages, right? So if they push somebody really, really hard, they weight that heavier, and then they see how long it takes to get them back to recovery baselines, that leg lift test that we talked about. Okay, that's that same kind of concept, and that's the units of periodization that makes sense, but it's helpful to know that there's good research behind that it's important to think in that mind frame, right? There's times when you push the athlete hard through a couple of weeks, but there's also times when you listen to feedback and you try to tinker based on the training program, right? Jake saying, I can't do another ring routine. That's just not gonna happen. Or my girl saying, my legs are exploding right now. My legs hurt so bad. I don't know if a full floor routine is gonna be good. And I say, okay, you're gonna go to soft today. I'll give you another day and then tomorrow we'll do full routines, okay? Uh, trying to remember that kids are not little mini adults. Okay. Just because what works in the senior athletes is not going to work in the juniors, is not going to work in the younger ones. It's enormously expensive to grow new tissue, which is what they're doing right now. It's enormously expensive to learn. Your brain uses a lot of your fuel right during the day. So kids who come from school and come into training practice. And it's also very, very hard to recover when you're younger. Right. So you can recover faster, but it, it just costs more. That makes sense? Okay, last one. Okay, the general role of cross-training and, and mental health and longevity, that slide that had all those studies, a lot of the main conclusion is there is that athletes that want to go to the Olympics or want to have a long-term goal and who are specializing early, you have to really consider what you're doing in cross-training and what you're doing in the long-term and not always just their sport. And I think Nick and I talked about this and he had a really good thing he said. He said, well, once a week, you know, if they're, if they're in a higher stress training program, we'll take 15 minutes and we'll play a gymnastics game. We'll, we'll play kickball. We'll do something silly. We'll jump the noodle. That's very popular in America. Put the noodle, jump over in the foam pit. Like a 15-minute pressure relief before a, a grueling three-hour training session. Okay, And that's kind of what I think that applies to us. It's not about everybody should also be a swimmer. That's, that's not what we're going for. It's about that little bit of cross-training in the summer for those three months just to pull the, the monotony out of training or to pull the stresses off a little bit of different, different exercises or getting the kids. In our gym, what we do is two, year, two times per year, in the, in the preseason, in the middle of season, we have a game night. We have an hour after practice where we bring in Jenga, we bring in movies, just throw the Frisbee around. It's hilarious watching gymnasts throw a Frisbee. Um, but it's just like, it's, it's built in as like a way to just take a break. Because at that point, coaches and <laughs> athletes alike are really hitting the end of their rope and it's a good way to kind of build community. But I think it helps to kind of break up some of that grueling nature of gymnastics. All right. so I wanna really emphasize this. This comes from the research is that it's not about not training, okay? The most effective way to prevent injury and make somebody be high level is to prepare them physically. We've talked about this. And I put these slides on purpose because a moderate amount of this may actually prepare your back, okay? And a moderate amount of this with proper recovery may actually prepare your wrist for that. And that's an error that I see a lot. People are like, well, I'm just gonna stop pommels altogether because kids' wrists are hurting. It's like, okay, yeah, three to seven days, back off, see the doctor and make sure it's not serious. But at a certain degree, 
it's time to get back and, and dosing it, right? You have to slowly wean your way back into it. Maybe that's swinging 100 circles and then wrapping it up and being done for the day and going over and doing drills. Maybe that's taking a lot of trampoline bounces and tumble track bounces and doing all your skills and then going and doing your prehab program three days per week, right? It's about slowly increasing the load. There's a really interesting study from uh, the British Journal of Sports Medicine. They had people exercise into pain, and this is a medical thing. Half of the group, the moment you feel pain, stop, okay? The other half of the group, get to like a two or a three. Like, eh, I kind of feel it, but it's not that bad. The people who tolerated slight amounts of discomfort got better faster and got a higher level in the end, okay? And I'm not telling you, that's not an excuse Dave said train through pain. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying is that when athletes have the start of soreness or crankiness or they're coming back from an injury, just feel it out. You know, don't be like, everybody stop, we can't train, right? But it's also not like blow through pain. It's about kind of riding that fine line. And usually what I say, I say, okay, when you go back to gym, uh, about a three out of 10 is what you're looking for to tolerate in discomfort. If you start to feel soreness, finish whatever your assignment is, do something else, and then the next day, you can't have pain that lasts. So if the next day you wake up and you're still in the same or more pain, too many aspirin, okay? If you woke up and you were feeling a little bit better and it's not that bad, we're gonna take that day and then the next day we'll try it again and we'll see what happens. And that has to happen in conjunction with medical, but that's really the best way that I've found to apply some of this research because everybody has soreness all the time in all sports, especially high performance, right? But if you, if you throw your hands up and run away every time someone's sore, that's not going to do it. But also, if someone's like, my back hurts, and you're like, whatever. You know, like, yeah, my back, you know, my back really hurts. Yeah, good luck. Figure it out. Be tougher. Like, that's the stuff that drives me bonkers because there's a fine line between pushing an athlete to get them to be stronger and being unintelligent. Now I'm going to stop my conversation there. Okay, so stress. So we have to think about physical, mental, and emotional is all in the same funnel of bucket into that total stress. Okay, it all correlates <laughs> to the same thing, right? There's a lot of different things. Me being in a six-hour layover in Dubai with a headache is equally as stressful as me trying to do a workout a couple days ago, right? It's the same kind of thought process we're going through. So you have to always be thinking about that in cumulative strength. The same way we had a fader dial for strength and power and cardio, or whatever it is, those three, four dials I said, you have to always be thinking about the fader dials of those three big buckets of stress. Okay, and the best analogy that I've ever found that I use with every athlete that I talk about, even though they probably don't have a bank account, is I think it's you correlate it to the human bank account. Okay, and this is how we talk about teaching athletes to take care of themselves. Okay, and this is all, I think I, I learned this from my, my buddy Jay Lydon, who has a really good uh, podcast on the, the website. Uh, he deals with, um, Adults mostly, but in, in very, very high level fitness. Okay, so CrossFit at the games, international power lifters, bodybuilders who squat like thousands of pounds. And so he has to really tinker with like that fine balance of stress because he, he can easily break somebody. Um, and so what you think about is you have a bank account, okay, and you have withdrawals. Like you take money out of the bank to buy food and to go do something, whatever. Those are correlated to stressors. Okay, every time you have a stress dosage, you're pulling money out of the bank. Okay, so that can be mental stress, physical stress, or emotional stress, that can be a four-hour practice, right? That can be huge test for me this weekend. That can also be the reality of working with teenagers. That can be somebody spewing hate in the comments section on Instagram and somebody feels upset about it or they had a huge blowout fight with their friend or their mom was yelling at them when they walked in the door. All of those things are withdrawals from the bank account, okay? And if you don't deposit things back in the bank account, you start off at a much lower you know, total money account for what you do. And what happens if you keep taking withdrawals? You withdraw, you overdraw your bank account, right? Injury, burnout, diva. That's what that's what fun, non-functional overreaching is. It's overdrawing your bank account. Okay. So 
really important concept to think about. The external uh, training load is something that's very popular in the research. That's actually the work that you're doing, okay? So that is the, that's the actual prescription of workload. And you wanna measure this because if you don't have a marker of measurement, how do you know if you're getting better? If I don't do that screen with their shoulders, how do I know if what I'm doing is working? Okay, so this can be do five releases, do three releases, like do the sled pushes, do all of your actual stuff. And you can, it's objective, you know, okay? You can, you can figure that out. And that's a very common and useful way to measure. That's what GPS running is in, in, uh, in football. That's what pitch counts is in baseball. That's what hyperextension or flight time is for gymnastics, okay? External workload. Very important though, okay, is the internal workload, okay? The perceived challenge of that workload. Okay, again, we all run a mile. Some of us say that was three out of a 10. Some people say that was seven out of a 10. One poor lad that went out drinking last night says it's a 10 out of 10, okay? Everybody has a different perception of the effort. And that's very important to think about going back to the cumulative strain bucket. Because little Sally, whose mom was yelling at her when she walked in and has to do two full floor routines, is gonna have a much higher recruitment of her stress response. It's probably gonna take her more time to recover. Okay, so the way that you do this is you do it through journaling, okay, and those wellness surveys and that tracking sheet that you saw, that's why they have that uh, fatigue 1 to 10 and not just soreness 1 to 10. Soreness 1 to 10 helps me know about external workload. Fatigue 1 to 10 helps me know about internal workload. Mood and notes goes along with that. Heart rate, external workload. You guys got that? Okay, so that's a very quick synopsis. Number of hours slept gives me an index of recovery, okay, because goodness knows if you're on Instagram till 4 in the morning, you're not gonna be ready the next training session, okay? So those things I have found are the most helpful, and I do that more because I want the athletes to take care of themselves and realize their own training. It's not for me to harp on them when I look at their training journal. Okay, so that study that I talked about, and I, I don't know if I've ever found a more fascinating study that re relates to problems that gymnastics is facing right now. Okay, so they studied 36, uh, I think they were football teams, uh, non-American football teams, so soccer, okay? And they looked, they asked the, the medical providers, take this with a grain of salt because it's subjective, they asked the head medical providers what they thought of the coaches. Okay, is this coach transactional? We have a job to do, get it done, period. Uh, that's kind of more, this is what it is. You know, that's also a dictatorship, typically, the, the, the fear motivator, that kind of stuff. Uh, a transformative leader, okay, the person who is the, you know, this is our, this is our process, this is our journey, we're going to work hard. And goal, I, I, this is why I'm doing it, kind of what Shane was talking about yesterday with process goals, and then a laissez-faire leadership. Hands off, you know, I'm here because I'm awesome. And it's not bad, it's not good, it just is. Yes, I, I think I've definitely met coaches like that that are just there, you know. So they, they looked at those three categories. Really hardcore, really kind of we're in this together. And they also looked at hands off. And they also asked them, um, do they support people's opinions? Do they... Um, value others' input? Do they give the athletes a say? And they correlated that to injuries and the time missed from practice or competition. And what they found is that the transformative type of style of leadership was significantly correlated to less acute and overuse injuries, and it was also correlated to less time missed from practice, okay? The dictatorship style was correlated to more injuries, more burnout, and more time missed from practice. Really interesting stuff. I've never seen a study that looked across that kind of thing. And again, subjective, the medical provider's opinion of the coaches, the coach's opinion of the athletes. It's like so many cloudy, murky waters. But I thought that was really, really cool because it kind of validates for me the change that I've gone through, right? When I was, insert swear word here, when I was that five years ago, kids were hurt. I didn't want to be at practice. They were not happy with me. 
and I definitely wasn't performing well long term. But when I took a step back, Nick and I talked about ego, I started to learn from more people, enjoyed the process over the outcome of medals or money or social media attention. I started to notice that the injury trends went down. There's a lot of factors for that. But also I noticed that the kids were a little bit happier. You know, watch like seeing Olivia smile in the pit right there. I can't tell you how happy that makes me because five years ago, Olivia hated her life being in gymnastics. She's so much pressure and she's a type A personality. She didn't want to be there. She's like nine years old. And she's just, I did not think we were going to make it long term. So seeing her be happy in the pit doing the middle of a brutal <laughs> strength conditioning circuit is, is a really good sign for me that we're moving in the right direction. Okay, so then on the other side of the equation, the withdrawals, withdrawals are balanced out with recovery. Okay, so let's work, put money back in the bank. Maybe don't buy that fun first. That looks pretty good. Just kidding. Okay, so time is the number one predictor of recovery. Uh, sleep, hydration, and nutrition. Those are like the big four. And uh, we'll talk about in the Keystone lecture, um, I get very upset in the States of how much crap is being sold to people on recovery as a gimmick or a tool or the next big hack for recovery. Like, yeah, it's important. The vibrating buzz gun is going to help you maybe feel less sore. So is the big puffy boots that look really cool. But if you're not sleeping, eating the right thing, drinking enough water, and actually going a time interval between training sessions, it's a complete waste. Completely. And that's supported by really good research from Dr. Sands, who was the head OTC recovery expert and was also working in gymnastics. He was the leading researcher in the recovery room for all of the sports, not just gymnastics. And he, he likes dynamic compression. He thinks it's really valuable, but not ahead of these things. Okay, so teaching athletes about that in a positive way and having an educational communicational point at all times about that is probably the best bang for your buck. Okay, so what does it look like in real life? Okay, that's going to bed. Oh, sorry, this one as well. Sometimes getting time away from the gym. Uh, I did a, a really cool like comp compilation interview with uh, five former Olympians from the U.S. that were college gymnasts and asked them, what helped you survive your four years in college or the Olympics? And all of them said, friends outside the gym. You know, a hobby outside the gym, movies, an hour here and there just to like go away from gymnastics because it takes your mind off the stress of training. So I thought that was really cool. So sleeping and feeling for performance, right? Having an hour at the end of the training week where you can just hang out with your friends and watch a movie, right? Some people like to journal. Uh, some people like to just talk with their parents or like a sports psychologist. Some people have to do that. But again, those are the three buckets of physical, mental, and emotional uh, stress that put money back in the bank. Okay, so this is kind of the emphasis on this. Top four, outside dress, uh, outside of the gym, stress management, then some of the other fun stuff, okay? And think about the fact that I do this for a living. I teach foam rolling and stretching for a living, and it's number seven, okay? So I, I think I see the bigger picture, I understand that. Okay, so after we've gone through, you stress the athlete with all the good stuff, recover them optimally, okay? The tinkering process begins where you, you do this a couple times and you like have communication about like what, what was good, what wasn't good. A lot of this stuff happens for us in our just daily lineup. You know, I'm like, you know, how, how do you guys feel after yesterday? Um, how's it been going? How's the training week? You know, do you feel ready? Do you not feel ready? And the conversations kind of elicit what you might need to look more at. Sometimes it comes from the coaching staff. You have some coaches that are like, yeah, I mean, this is just not working well. I feel really overwhelmed and frustrated. Sometimes it comes from parent feedback. Um, I think the hardest thing I ever had to do is really take more time and listen to the parents, not automatic, automatically assume they didn't have a valuable opinion because they didn't know gymnastics. But remember, the other 140 hours of the week, they're with the kid. Okay, so Olivia, she keeps coming back as the example because she's common as a type A personality. And she's so stressed out with school and she's got really high 
I mean, she wants to be very academic as well. So her mom says she's just like a basket case. When she comes home from the gym sometimes, she's at a bad training practice and she has a lot of schoolwork to do. She won't sleep. She's super fidgety all the time. And so a lot of us have to come down to listening to what her mom is saying about what's going on. If we want to try, she wants to go to level 10 and go to college. That's like her goal. So she's 13 and that's coming in five more years. It's really important that I understand what else is going on in her life outside of just gymnastics because if Ish hits the fan, she has a really bad day and I don't understand that maybe she's fighting with someone or something's going on and I push her really hard regardless because I say get it done and she gets hurt. Different situation. Okay. All right. You guys understand your athletes more than I do. Okay, so I'm not going to give you recommendations, especially in the next lecture, but no one is going to be able to kind of communicate that to your athletes more than you. And I want you to really take in some of the things that you can do, right? Every day, touch base. Try to think about this is not a, a static process. This is a constantly moving fluid thing. And I use the analogy with the athletes, gas, tank, uh, gas pedal, brake pedal, right? So sometimes you're really heavy on the gas. Sometimes you're kind of like shifting gears. And sometimes you're slamming the brakes back and forth. And I, I try to teach them to use that terminology when they express things I'm like, you know, bank account and gas pedal, brake pedal are pretty helpful for them. And that tends to communicate better than being like trying to get the nitty gritty of stress and stuff like that. Good. Okay. So what, how do we take this and apply it? Right. So using the binders, I think is really, really helpful. I think I, I haven't found a better system than binders until somebody pays a lot of money to make an app. Uh, Tumble track is a very popular, this big company in the States and I'm working a lot with them. Can you guys just shell out a million dollars just get this done? Please, <laughs> please just do it. Um, but we need a, we need an app that tracks these things very specifically for a gymnastics-specific function. But for now, binders seem to be the best thing. Okay, try to make sure once a year you have that three-hour coffee and pizza break to figure out what went wrong in the last year, what did we do really, really well in the last year. And I also recommend every three months, it's maybe a little bit check-in real quick to be like, what's going well, what's not, what should we change, over-communicate with your staff members and your coach members um, and try to make sure that you're you're actually in touch with what's going on and you're not delusional. Okay, coaching plans I think are very effective the same way we would plan a bar progression for the next year or we would plan the end goal of what their skills are going to be on transfer routine. We'd break those down. Do the same thing for the training workloads and do the same thing for the big competitions that you know are coming. Okay, listen as much as you possibly can. Okay, the... the Biggest examples I've seen of people who fall from grace, who have all the pieces going well and just blow up and they can't get it done, are the ones that don't listen to their athletes and or don't listen to their coaches, or the ones who have a one set track mind. This is my way all the time and we're not moving left and right. Okay, and that just doesn't jive with the group dynamic of athletes. Okay, it might work for one athlete who's super type A, do these five things, then do those five things and then go do this. And it might not jive with some other athletes. Okay, and so I think that I've unfortunately witnessed a lot of really, really crappy examples of people who I really wanted to make it and who I thought were going to go on to do great things. And their ego or their inability to be self-aware was their downfall, Okay, both in the gymnastics world but also in other sports and then also in the business world. So I try my best to, to think about that, especially when parents are like kicking the door in and they're like, my daughter is going to be an Olympian. And I'm like, your daughter likes butterflies. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not the same. So I try to really think about like let it happen, like see what they have to say. Dig through the layers a little bit. Okay, what you do right now, this is going to start, you're going to see a lot of concepts wrapping up in this lecture and the next lecture because it's kind of like summarizing where we're going for the next couple of years. Okay, capping those uh, higher risk skills. Okay, for beam, for example, I want you to hit five beam series, but don't go over eight. Okay, if you're having a really rough day and you miss one to five, you probably need to drill more than another beam series anyways. Right, but that can be correlated to all the different parts of gymnastics, right? 
aim for this number. I want you to hit these, but let's not go crazy. And the reason I know the cap is because if I'm planning a training week, we have beam four times a week. I know if we do series three times in that training week, and I always cap it at eight, I know they'll probably do a handful of extra drills and stuff, so I assume 15 is the number. I know 45 is about where we're at for the training load. And then the next two weeks, I say, okay, it's you know, big time, big training week, we gotta really push it, you know, or you're really struggling on beam, we're gonna increase your workload more to try to dial that in. But shoot for eight, don't go over 10, something like that, you know what I mean? And I think that can be applied to all skills. Another thing that's been very, very helpful is trying to rotate. Dave, like, yep. Would you follow the same principle of, say, like building those numbers over three weeks, a week rest? Would yep. You do the same probably. thing with, with numbers of skills? Yep, I would probably do the same thing, just thinking more on tissue tolerance and more about loading parameters. I would think about uh, slowly building up over three weeks and then maybe a 30% drop off and make it a pressure set. So I'd say maybe if we were at that 45-ish mark. Um, I know a lot of athletes or a lot of coaches at a high level that I've talked with are really big on uh, warming up and then doing a cold set, relative cold set. So I would say maybe we, we pull back a week on the total volume, but we make it a quality over quantity thing where the whole gym's gonna stop and stare at you and you're gonna be under the gun pretty hard. Again, you're pulling back the physical stress, but you're increasing the mental and emotional stress fader dial. Uh, very good question. Okay, the other way that I've found, especially with younger athletes who are kind of in that eight to 13 window, which I think is where we're really screwing it up and they're snowballing injuries, is that if you have, I, I do believe you should do beam and bars every day, okay? Trampoline, it's kinda, <laughs> it's all you got, right? So I believe that you're doing the same thing. I think you really have to rotate the event focuses the older they get. So let's use a couple of examples. Let's take a women's artistic gymnast. She's really good at backbending. What are her skills gonna be? She's gonna do Uchenko. She's gonna tumble on floor. She's gonna do a beam series of layout step out. She might land a pack or a shaposh down the road. Extension, 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 every day, all the time, okay? Drills, side stuff. Men's artistic, right? Really good shoulder flexibility. She's probably gonna do a jam. She's probably gonna do the pelt stuff overhead. It's gonna start Chinese tapping. Ring giants are gonna come along. It's gonna be a lot of shoulder demanding stuff. Okay, if you have that event and you know you need to touch that event every day, some gyms do twice per day, you know you're gonna to touch bars five days per week, right? You should probably rotate the hyperextension skills across all the events and be careful about that, especially in the heavier training loading. Because if you just do vault extension, floor extension, beam extension, bars extension, and don't have maybe one day where we work long hang swings and we hold off on back bending, you might quickly get a stress fracture. Okay, same thing with impacts. If you do dismounts on bars and tumble on floor and do dismounts on vault and you're working hard impacts everywhere else, then you do plyometrics and your conditioning, you probably just put in a thousand ground contacts on the athlete. Okay, and if you do that every day, you're gonna have severs pop up real quick. Okay, trampoline, good luck. I don't know how to help you. Maybe Steve has a better idea, but rotating maybe some of the intensity of tramp time versus physical prep versus side drills and other things like that. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. And then also for rhythmic and stuff like that, there's other disciplines that you just have to think about the principle of what's most provocative and how can we maybe switch out some of the training days. There are so many ways to get good at gymnastics without doing gymnastics. I promise you that. And the best coaches in the world have maximized their technical proficiency and their ability to spot and their ability to help the athlete with the nitty gritty, but they've also maximized their other outside of just gymnastics realm. So they know a little bit about nutrition, but they have somebody they work with. They work a little bit on mental health, but they have somebody they work on. You know, they really mastered the realms of coaching and gymnastics, technical proficiency in spotting and, and vaulting to hard when you need to vault to hard. They understand that, but they understand the outside rings as well. Okay, also with this, keep light, medium, heavy days uh, in mind. Try to remember that you're thinking with those fader dials. Try to build the, the culture that has track. Ooh, that's, that's a good catch. Tracking, monitoring, right, strength, all those things are kind of mixed in. Those are the cultures and the values. Take a whole year 
and build that, and your life will be much easier for the next 20. Okay? It's frustrating to get in the middle of season and not have that set up, and then you get really, really, you start to ride the struggle bus pretty hard. Okay, lastly, if you are in this form, especially, you have to be an absolute ninja with planning. Planning and, and, and looking at data, and understanding the numbers along with what the athletes say. Okay, so you can live on extremes on both sides of those and get into hot water. You can either only look at data and be paralyzed, paralysis by analysis is what they call it, and think so much about numbers, and I'm a, I'm a nerd, so I like that stuff, but you lose contact with the athletes about what they're actually saying. Okay, and then you can go on the other side where you spend so much time in like the communication and the fluffiness and the, and the trying to be a good coach that you lose track of the actual numbers and making sure you're pushing kids hard enough to do the right thing. Or you stick to your gun sometimes when you need to when the athletes are really at the end of their rope, but you realize like end of a third training week that's supposed to be hard, let's, let's buckle up and let's get it done. You know, you gotta kind of ride that line back and forth. So these books, I think out of all the things I've read are probably the most helpful on this topic. There's a couple other books on stress that are way too geeky for you guys to care about. But these are the practical ones. So this is the book that has um, Tim's workload lecture or chapter in it. It also has a lot of the stuff from the strength and conditioning lecture that I think is really, really valuable. Um, this book here is uh, came out 2017 or 18. It's a really good like summary of recovery and, and periodization and, and performance. It talks a lot about sleep, nutrition, uh, loading parameters. And it's also really cool because they take multiple disciplines. So medical providers, coaches, whatever. But they also ask the opinions of how much does the coach know about recovery? How much does the medical provider know about recovery? How much do athletes know about recovery? And that's across multiple Olympic and elite international sports. So it's a really good compilation of data that they put together well. And if you're looking for more of the tactical stuff of how do I track, what do I track, what survey should I use, um, how can I measure stress more appropriately, this book is like the, the, the user's manual to, to more of like someone who's doing that for a living, a sports scientist or something like that. But there's a lot of really good chapters in there that I think I found whatever's in these slides that are really, really helpful. Uh, studies, if you're looking for some of Tim's work, okay, these two consensus statements came out in 2014. And I think, um, I think his name's DeFory. He's from the States. He's like the lead researcher in wrist injuries for gymnasts. He's involved in those two studies. So he has a really good opinion about what we need to do. But they essentially cover like what's the, what's the correlation of loading risk and injuries? And then in part two, it was like illness, right? Getting sick is just another form of too much stress, not enough recovery, compromise your immune system, right? So they, they summarize in part one and part two, all the issues with early specialization, long duration sports, gymnastics, ballet, dance, baseball. And they also uh, helpfully, they outline a lot of helpful strategies. You know, try to, try to mix in periodization, try to cross train, focus on recovery, you know, sprinkle in some, some lifting here and there. They offer a lot of practical advice for the high-performing coach. And then these last ones down here are more Tim's research, right? So where that stuff comes from for spikes and workloads, um, how you actually monitor people. And uh, he actually just put out a really good paper on um, all of those studies, what people got wrong. Like what are, what are the misunderstandings about what we say about it? And I haven't read it yet, so I might change my slides, I'm sorry. But it's like, what, what are the misunderstandings that people are embracing? And then next uh, month when I go and I have his course, I'll probably learn a lot more and anything that I learn, I'll send back this way to Adelaide. Um, the chapter in the book is 11, if you guys wanna know more about recovery. Um, the, this is a good user's manual that I made. It's just like 27 things that you should be thinking about at all times as a checklist if you wanna to try to get through a competitive season in one piece. These are more of the research studies if you are interested. And that's the end of that one. I have no idea how long that took. <laughs> Sorry, <Adelaide. laughs>
All right, guys, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I appreciate you tuning into The Shift Show. I hope that you got a lot of information out of this episode. If you want to learn even more about the concepts inside this episode, be sure to check out the show notes where I've included some more information. You can head over to shiftmovementscience.com to get tons more free content, or you can also head over to any of my social media accounts where I offer lots of free content for all these ideas. If you found this podcast helpful, I would really appreciate it if you headed over to iTunes and rated and reviewed this, as well as pass this on to your community members so that they can have the same ideas and tools that you have. Uh, If you have any questions or want to reach out to me about certain topics, probably the best way to do that is through social media and I will do my best to help you out. Have a great day. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it and got a lot of value out of it. I just wanna let you know before we sign off here that a couple things we'd love for you to do. So one is please just make sure that you rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, because that really does help the episode grow quite a bit. And then second, if you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you left us a review as well and told us what you liked about it. You know, what information was useful, what things were not useful, would you like to know more about, what guests do you wanna have on in the future? And then also as you kind of go about your day, if you found something really useful, just toss it up on social media. We love to hear from people on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, all the different websites that they're using for social media. Facebook is great too. But yeah, let us know what you like, because honestly, the podcast comes from people who just tell us what they're finding useful. And that's how we create the next set of content. So yeah, tag us in the podcast or tag us online, whatever you're doing it. And uh, let us know what you think. Thanks.